sickle, bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. True, Bone and Sickle is now two years old. Our first show went out for uh, May Eve or Valpurgisnacht 2018, so uh, we're celebrating. Yes. Mrs. Carswell wanted to... Uh, uh, Mrs. Carswell, who is the uh, reader for any passages... Passages of, from the books you see around you, as you say. I, I guess I was skipping the uh, intro. We're in a study with lots of old books... I think it helps to paint the picture. Anyway, she, that is uh, Mrs. Carswell here. To my right, your right, along with managing domestic duties. She wanted to sing the birthday song, but I thought instead I'd just indulge my uh, passion for uh, somewhat creepy old children's records. You said it for the past 45 shows. It's what people are used to and paints the picture. The library of an old house from the 188... 1882. 1872. But the point is, we we wanted to mark the occasion. We do actually have a cake, a birthday cake. Honey hazelnut with two candles. Yes, I'm uh, looking forward to that after the show and some brandy. Or, well, why wait, actually? It would have been nice to have had an actual party and invite listeners. Mm. Well, you did bring out your bees... That does make it a bit more festive. I get lonely always being in yes, my room. A jar of bees. These are lonely times. All of us isolated. And it doesn't help if you drink. Well, uh, speak for yourself. It's just worrisome when I clean the bathroom and find a brandy bottle. I like to drink in the bath. My grandfather drank in the bathtub. My grandmother, too. Oh. On... Saturdays. Uh, not in the same tub. They had one of those uh, tin tubs back in the day. It was antique even then, but uh, portable, so two people could bathe at once and drink. I walked in on them uh, once. Mother never allowed locking bathroom doors. It was uncomfortable. She had certain doors removed altogether. Then sometimes they'd be back in place. Did you get ice cream for the cake? Honey lavender. I made it myself. Excellent. So, uh, let's just get this started. The sooner we're done, the sooner there's cake. Yes. And ice cream. Episode 47, Holy Puppets, Medieval Robots, and More. (laughs) 
I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the uh, intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this uh, area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive a number of unique and sometimes handcrafted rewards related to the show and its themes. Should you be interested in sending a little birthday gift our way, I'll have more on Patreon at the end of the episode. They tied Pinocchio's hands behind his shoulders and slipped the noose around his neck. Throwing the rope over the high limb of a giant oak tree, they pulled till the poor marionette hung far up in space. A few minutes went by, and then a wild wind started to blow. The rocking made him seasick, and the noose, becoming tighter and tighter, choked him. Little by little, a film covered his eyes. Death was creeping nearer and nearer, and the marionette still hoped for some good soul to come to his rescue, but no one appeared. Thus ends the original story of Pinocchio as uh, serialized in the uh, children's magazine Giornale per i Bambini in 1881. Perhaps uh, not a fitting end for the uh, Pinocchio we imagine today, but more so for the character author uh, Carlo Collodi described in his story as ungrateful, stubborn, rude, and... A rascal of the worst kind. The adventures the marionette experiences in the original story are less a matter of fun and games than brutal object lessons in the world's dangers, though colorfully imagined lessons, to be sure. So well imagined that readers demanded more stories, and Collodi was compelled to rescue Pinocchio for further adventures compiled in final book form in 1883. Not that the story didn't retain dark elements. Uh, Pinocchio is uh, caught in a weasel trap, uh, tied up in a doghouse and beaten, sold off to someone who wants to skin him and use his hide to make a drum. He's starved and nearly fried in hot oil. And uh, Geppetto is uh, thrown in jail for allegedly abusing him, and the puppet's companions, the cat and fox, are tortured. The cat is blinded and loses a paw, and the fox loses most of his hair along with his tail, which he's forced to sell for food. Even the beloved Cricket, who in this original story goes unnamed, is mashed to death early in the story, in fact, only to tag along in the form of ghost for the remainder. You're dead, Pinocchio. No! No, I'm not! Yes, yes, you are. You're dead, or dead, or dead, or dead, or dead, or dead, or dead, dead. The etymology of the word marionette provides an intro to our next topic. It comes from a French diminutive meaning Little Mary, as in the Blessed Virgin, as this character figured prominently in the earliest puppet shows which enacted uh, biblical stories. But beyond these uh, popular entertainments, puppets or jointed figures manipulated to suggest lifelike movement have also played a role as objects of devotion and symbols within liturgical rites. Primarily, this would be life-size figures of Christ used during the Easter week to enact stages of the Passion, 
most commonly the removal or deposition from the cross, in which the nails pinning the figure would be pulled and jointed arms would allow the puppet to flex naturally as it's removed. Christ, or sometimes Blessed Virgin puppets, were found in England, Germany, Italy, Austria, Switzerland, the Czech Republic, Poland, France, and Norway, and above all in Spain, particularly in uh, Castile and Leon, where some of these lifelike figures may still be seen during Holy Week. Though most are now displayed in fixed positions, there are more than 150 existing specimens of uh, such puppets. Most have uh, joints at the shoulders, many are jointed at the knees, elbows, and hips, uh, some have uh, rotating heads, and some have fingers jointed to match each and every skeletal joint. And in quite a few, these joints are hidden to make a natural-looking flexing joint covered with a calfskin leather, which is colored to match the painted figure. Human hair adorns many, and a few have nails simulated with thin slivers of animal horn. Three were known to house internal tanks and tubes that allowed the figure to miraculously bleed from the traditional spear wound in the savior's side. But it's not just a matter of passive jostling limbs and bleeding. Historical accounts and modern restoration reports have described internal gears, wires, ratchets, and other fittings that once allowed some figures to be animated by puppeteers, perhaps seen or perhaps unseen. The three bleeding figures mentioned were also fitted with swiveling eyeballs that contract devotees, though, and, though barely visible, movable tongues, the movement of which could suggest uh, quiet but miraculous murmurings. A now lost figure of the Virgin, a Sapieta, that is, uh, cradling the dead Christ, was known to weep through a very odd mechanism. In a 1796 guide to the uh, town of Rostock, Germany, where it once stood in the Church of St. Mary, this feature is described. The eyes are pierced because the hollowed-out head is filled with water and small living fish set within. As they move, the water pushes through the holes, and it was accepted that these would be the tears shed by the image. Other figures were discovered to house mechanisms that would allow them to speak, such as a case from 16th century Bern, Switzerland, noted in the uh, 1572 book with the long title, I'll just abbreviate as, uh, of ghosts and spirits walking by night. The book describes, An image of the Holy Virgin, where one of the monks standing behind a cloth spake through a cane reed, as if it were Christ talking with his mother. One of the two outstanding examples of such figures is in the 13th century cathedral of St. Mary in uh, Burgos, Spain. French writer Théophile Gautier describes his experience of the Christ of Burgos in his 1843 book, Wanderings in Spain. Nothing can be as disquieting than this attenuated, crucified phantom with its death-like stillness. The faded and brownish-yellow skin is streaked with long streams of blood, so well imitated that they seem to trickle. It requires no great effort of imagination to give credence to the legend that it bleeds every Friday. It is not formed of colored stone or wood, but actually consists of human skin, at least so they say, stuffed in the most artistic manner. Unfortunately, I'm afraid the skin covering the figure is, again, just calf skin. 
nor was it an actual mummified corpse, as uh, other legends maintained. But there was something unnerving about the figure's flesh. It was soft to the touch, uh, due to a layer of uh, wool batting inserted under the calfskin only. Queen Isabel was said to have fainted after touching the figure's hand, dropping it and seeing it swing freely. And other legends describe how the figure's been observed sweating, or that the hair and fingernails are slowly growing. Another famous Christ puppet is a 15th century English figure known as the Rood of Grace. Uh, Rood is an old English word for pole or stake, and by extension, uh, the crucifix. Its home was a now-ruined abbey in the town of Boxley in Kent. The figure no longer exists, so what we know of it comes from contemporary Protestant reformers inclined to exaggerate, to uh, paint a more dramatic picture of Catholic deviousness. The soberest of these comes from a letter uh, written by Geoffrey Chamber, a commissioner assigned by Cromwell to investigate the rood. He reports on... Certain engines and old wires, with old rotten sticks, that did cause the eyes to move, and stare in the head thereof, like unto a living thing. But uh, William Lambard, in his uh, 1570 book, A Perambulation of Kent, gives the rude the ability to... Bend the brows, and to express a well-contented or displeased mind, biting the lip, and gathering a frowning and disdainful face. Others claim the figure could shed tears and even, uh, strangely enough, uh, foam at the mouth. The origins of the Root of Grace were equally miraculous. Legend says it was created by an English carpenter imprisoned by the French. For uh, some reason, he's uh, granted leave to sell the figure. Traveling with the Christ strapped to the side of a horse, he stops at an inn, but the horse rushes off, arriving at Boxley Abbey, where it insistently knocks on the door with its hoof. Once admitted, the horse refuses to budge, signifying that Boxley Abbey is the God-chosen destination for the Rood. Protestants not only painted the Rood as an example of the church's deceit, but also as a means of extracting donations from uh, curious pilgrims. While this uh, may be justified, in fairness, it, it should be pointed out that in some, many, or perhaps even most cases, these puppets may not have been intended to deceive, but more as a means to vividly enact Christian motifs, like uh, props or players in the uh, miracle and mystery plays, which themselves were really no more deceitful than the uh, modern staging of uh, Christmas nativity plays. But the uh, case of the Root of Grace is more one of uh, brutal confrontations with reality. A 1538 letter from John Cromer to uh, Cromwell reports the figure being dragged to the marketplace in the town of Maidenstone, where he showed it to the people who held the matter in wondrous detestation and hatred. After this, it was taken to London, where in front of Old St. Paul's, the Bishop of Rochester delivered a sermon against the rood. And when he had made an end, the image was torn all to pieces. The rood was even uh, rudely mocked in a ballad by Cromwell's propagandist, William Gray. 
The rhyme also makes a scandalous reference to Our Lady of Walsingham, a sculpted virgin associated with a number of Marian apparitions. The rood, he says, was made to ogle, his eyes would goggle, he would bend his brows and frown. With his head he would nod like a proper young god, his jaws would go up and down. The same was that this rood of grace and Our Lady of Walsingham should have been married, saying they tarried to spy a time how and when. For some time in the night, if the people say right, as lovers each love to procure, they did meet very oft, whereby it was thought that Our Lady and he had been sure. The fact that Spain has a particularly rich heritage of mechanically animated holy figures is connected to the medieval Muslim culture there. It was from here that geared devices like astrolabes entered the West, and here that weight-driven clocks were employed almost two centuries before the rest of Europe. The history of clockwork wonders in the East is far more than we could survey in this one episode, but Western lore of animated automata is clearly inspired by the wonders in Eastern travelers' tales like that of the Greek ambassador visiting the Palace of the Tree in Baghdad in 917 AD. He describes the fantastic tree after which the palace is named. The tree had 18 branches, on which sat various kinds of mechanical birds in gold and silver, both large and small. Most of the branches of the tree were of silver, but some were of gold, and they spread into the air, and the leaves moving as the wind blew while the birds, through a concealed mechanism, piped and sang. More mechanical birds appear in an account from 949 AD in a report by an ambassador from northern Italy visiting the throne room of Emperor Theophilus in Constantinople. He describes twittering bronze birds as well as... Lions made either of bronze or wood, covered with gold, which struck the ground with their tails and roared with open mouth and quivering tongue. The 13th century romance of Escanor by Damien adds similar marvels adorning the bedchamber of the fairy sorceress Esclarmonde, mistress of the titular character. There is a flowering fruited tree on which mechanical or magical birds sing. It's never quite clear in medieval literature whether these things are the product of magic or mechanical tinkerings. The passage also describes an animated figure of an angel which intermittently blows a trumpet, but here, for instance, there is a suggestion that it's natural physics at play as the air from the trumpet is passed through a golden tube and that both this tube and the trumpet blast serve to activate the chirping of the birds. Another French epic poem of the era tells the tale of the uh, knight Huon de Bordeaux who confronts two giant men of copper armed with flails, centuries stationed before the uh, palace of the Emir of Babylon. This story also involves Esclamon, whose uh, hand the knight wishes to win. The thing that's really interesting about Esclamon is that she's sometimes said to have been tutored by Virgil, the uh, ancient Roman poet who, in medieval legends, had become a wizard and probably the figure most associated with the magical, mechanical wonders of the era. By the 1400s, when Dante had assigned Virgil the role of uh, guide in his divine comedy, his uh, importance to Christian Europe was already well established. Some verses of his uh, fourth eclogue had been interpreted by theologians of the time as predictions of the birth of Christ, 
as had the uh, prophecies of the uh, Cumaean Sibyl he portrayed in the Aeneid. And uh, you can listen to our Cave Witches episode for more on that. But it's uh, in that area around Naples uh, that's associated with the Sibyl where Virgil's reputation particularly thrived. First, there was a fly he crafted of bronze, which somehow was supposed to repel other flies from the city, a figure which blew a trumpet that repelled ill winds or ash blowing from Vesuvius, a gold model of a leech which neutralized the poisons of all the leeches in Naples, an uh, oracular head like the one crafted by Friar Bacon, also discussed in our uh, Lost Heads episode, and a collection of statues that included one which would ring a bell when the uh, Roman Empire was threatened and another that would swivel to indicate the direction posing the threat. Then there's uh, this legend as described by Gregory Peck in the 1953 film Roman Holiday. The mouth of truth. The legend is that if you're given to lying, you put your hand in there, it'll be bitten off. Yes, that one's Virgil too, or a version of it at least, uh, while the famous site in Rome offers the uh, mouth of something looking like an ogre, and in reality was probably just an ornamental drain cover or fountain cover before the legend elevated it. In the stories of Virgil, it's a mouth of a serpent he's crafted of bronze, or in other versions, the mouth of a stone lion. Another story has Virgil fabricating a copper horseman to patrol the city when it becomes overrun during the night with uh, miscreants. Even after his death, Virgil's bones, deposited according to legend in an egg-shaped chamber in his castle, served to repel storms and other disasters from Naples. And the um, flail-wielding copper men guarding the emir's castle in our previous story became automata guarding Virgil's castle in Neapolitan legend. Sometimes it was merely a pair of guards, and sometimes 12 mechanical men. Combative men and beasts of metal also appeared in Arthurian legends. In the 13th century tale known as the Prose Lancelot, the knight confronts a number of uh, metallic marvels. To uh, enter the castle known as Dolor's Guard, he must defeat two sentry knights of copper. He also overcomes a demonic black figure with a flaming mouth, also apparently an enchanted statue or uh, automaton. And eventually he finds the copper figure of a woman from whom he obtains a key, opening a sort of control panel in a pillar, revealing some sort of uh, organ or arrangement of pipes, conduits for uh, howling demonic voices animating the castle's enchantments, which he defeats or destroys. Around the same time, French poet uh, Chrétien de Troyes has his uh, Percival venture to an evil stronghold called the Copper Castle. There he confronts two copper brutes guarding the door with perpetually swinging iron hammers. There's also a copper bull worshipped by the inhabitants as an oracle, one which speaks with the voice of demons, the same which animate the copper sentries, it seems. And after battling his way in, Percival succeeds in converting 13 of those dwelling within to the one true faith, which magically reduces the bull to a molten puddle, making the copper castle uh, much, much less demonic. But uh, let's return for a moment to uh, Virgil for uh, one more interesting legend featuring Virgil's uh, mechanical guardians. Uh, we'll be quoting a uh, retelling in an 1863 edition of Charles Dickens' magazine, All the Year Round. 
In it, uh, Virgil, planning a ritual by which to renew his body after death, takes his servant into the castle cellar and, pointing to a barrel, instructs him, You must slay me, cut me into small pieces, salt them, and place them in the barrel, putting the head at the bottom and the heart in the middle. Then set the barrel under the lamp. That night and day it may leak and drop into the same, and once a day for nine days you must fill the lamp and fail not. The uh, horrified servant eventually agrees and, upon his master's death, fulfills his wishes. However, the emperor, concerned over Virgil's absence, summons the servant demanding that he deactivate the copper guard so that they may enter the enchanted castle, which they do, eventually uh, arriving at the salt barrel. Assuming his friend he finds mutilated in the salt barrel has been murdered by his servant, the emperor slays him at once, and then suddenly... A naked child was seen to rise from the barrel and to run three times around it, exclaiming, Cursed be the time that ever you came here. Then the child vanished like smoke. A sad end to Virgil's attempt at a little rejuvenation. A couple more 12th century stories of uh, mechanical tomb guardians and magic tomb lamps I'd like to share. The uh, first is told of uh, Gerbert of Aurillac, who later became uh, Pope Sylvester II, uh, who was himself uh, sometimes accused of wizardry. Um, as told in uh, William of Malmesbury's Chronicle Deeds of the Kings of the English, Gerbert discovers a subterranean treasure house in Rome by following the shadow cast by a particular statue's pointing finger. Within this buried palace, they find... Everything of gold. Golden soldiers amusing themselves, as it were, with golden dice. A king of the same metal at a table with his queen. Delicacies set before them and servants waiting. In the inmost part of the mansion, a carbuncle of the first quality, though small in appearance, dispelled the darkness of night. In the opposite corner stood a boy, holding a bow bent and the arrow drawn to the head. A uh, companion's attempt to snatch away a bit of the treasure releases that arrow, which extinguishes the light from the glowing gem, and they are left in absolute darkness. This motif is also found in the uh, French Romance of Aeneas from around 1160. Here it's uh, the tomb of the, the Amazon Camilla that's illuminated by an eternally burning gem lamp, and uh, one which is also filled with a number of wonders, including magic mirrors and magnets that reveal or repel intruders. Camilla's found there lying perfectly embalmed, sealed within her crypt with the cement made from ground jewels and the blood of serpents. Should the perfect stillness of her final resting place be disturbed by the slightest breath, there's again a mechanical archer to shoot out the lights, so to speak. The uh, aspect of Camilla's immortal beauty in the tomb combines with the notion of uh, tomb automata in a uh, particularly weird uh, episode preserved in some of the legends of uh, Tristan and Isolde. Uh, a little background for those unfamiliar with these uh, famously thwarted lovers. It's uh, the uh, downing of a love potion that begins the story or sets them on their doomed course. The uh, 
Irish princess Isolde marries uh, King Mark of Cornwall, but thanks to the potion, the two, Tristan and Isolde, continue to seek each other out secretly until it all ends in tears. There are many, many variations, but in an early Anglo-Norman version by uh, Thomas of Britain from about 1170, there's an interlude during which Tristan is attempting to uh, overcome the spell. He marries another woman, unhappily it turns out, as he's uh, still enjoying uh, rendezvous with Isolde. In a way, not the uh, flesh and blood Isolde, uh, but an artfully crafted golden automaton in her likeness, indistinguishable somehow from the real thing and equipped with a scepter upon which perches a bird with beating wings. She's uh, squirreled away in Tristan's uh, secret retreat called the Hall of Images with uh, mechanical replicas of her maidservant and her uh, beloved dog, Petticru, who uh, would uh, shake its head and jingle little bells on its collar. And to uh, add that extra touch of intimacy and vitality, the chamber of the false Isolde's heart is filled with aromatic herbs and connected to her mouth so that she exhales perfumed air. While Isolde is not technically dead, only temporarily dead to uh, Tristan, there is uh, certainly something morbidly unhealthy in his uh, caressing of a mechanical doll, his ceaseless confessions of undying love and regrets to her or it. But if we jump ahead a few centuries, we can uh, find elements of this sort of uh, morbidity in uh, some entertaining horror films of the 1970s. One of the strangest productions of that decade is... Tourist Trap where beautiful young people looking for excitement are tricked, trapped. <laughs> In 1979's Tourist Trap, uh, veteran Western star Chuck Connors plays Mr. Slauson, owner of the uh, nearly defunct roadside attraction Slauson's Lost Oasis. It's uh, full of uh, automata or crude animatronic figures representing uh, characters from the Old West. I don't want to give too much away, and it might be a bit hard to explain anyway, as the narrative's uh, an entertaining muddle of uh, psychokinetic powers, a bit of uh, Norman Bates-style cross-dressing, some Michael Myers-style masks, and uh, did I mention the uh, creepy automata? or things that might be automata, it's kind of hard to tell. All in all, it's a marvelously weird film exploiting the uh, horror potential of living mannequins to the fullest. The reason I mention it in the context of Tristan's uh, Hall of Images is that uh, one of Slauson's animated mannequins represents his dead wife, whom uh, Slauson talks to, dances with, and eventually... Uh, Guess we're avoiding spoilers. Watch the film. A uh, better known film from 1971, The Abominable Dr. Fives, also features the uh, image of a dead wife with whom the uh, title character regularly communes, as well as uh, animated mannequins, a sort of a clockwork ragtime band, the latter being part of the uh, film's unusual, at least for a horror film, sort of art deco stylization. Fibes' mechanical inventiveness is also on display in the entertainingly uh, 
absurd and complex means by which he executes his enemies, each one themed to represent uh, one of the ten plagues of Exodus in the Old Testament. And of course there's Vincent Price, who's a big part of the film's campy charm. Are you ready for Dr. Five? Um, he's also accompanied throughout by uh, the mute but lovely assistant, Volnavia, who, uh, while it's never really clear in the film, is uh, rather surprisingly identified in this script as yet another of Fibes' ingenious automata. Probably the most terrifying motion picture you'll ever see. If we uh, bounce back to the 19th century... There's a uh, literary automaton, an object of romantic fascination that's worth mentioning, in part because the story is so intriguing, and in part because the author is uh, generally important in the development of Gothic literature. He is Ernst Theodor Amadeus Hoffmann, uh, almost always referred to simply as E.T.A. Hoffmann, a uh, pioneer of German Romanticism. He often explored the fantastic and macabre and influenced writers such as Poe and Gogol. Uh, the short story in question is The Sandman. And again, I don't want to spoil this story, and I encourage you to read it. I will uh, link in the show notes to the English translation, but it's uh, a wonderfully grotesque mix of alchemy and nightmares, madness, and a bit of sliced satire. And, uh, of course, that female automaton with which the uh, questionably sane protagonist becomes obsessed. Though you may not have heard of Hoffman, you're probably already familiar with his work, as uh, Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker is based on Hoffman's fairy tale, The Mouse King. And some will have heard of Tales of Hoffman, uh, Offenbach's uh, 1881 opera, in which the writer himself is woven into some of his uh, fantastic stories. In uh, 1951, the uh, opera was adapted as a lovely British film of the same name, which, oddly enough, uh, has been cited by George A. Romero of uh, Night of the Living Dead fame as his... uh, Favorite film of all time. The movie that made me want to make movies. As a brief sample of the uh, Sandman's uh, text, we'll hear a passage in which the uh, narrator's childhood nanny describes for him her uh, own idiosyncratically terrifying take on the folkloric Sandman. He is a wicked man who comes to children when they won't go to bed and throws a handful of sand into their eyes so that they start out bleeding from their heads. He puts their eyes in a bag and carries them to the crescent moon to feed his own children who sit in the nest up there. They have crooked beaks like owls so that they can pick up the eyes of naughty human children. And finally, a bit of real, uh, traditional, but equally gruesome folklore. Uh, This is a tale from the Alps retold in... um, Swiss uh, literary and folklore writer Max Lutti's book, Once Upon a Time, on the nature of fairy tales. It is said that ancient chronicles report how many, many years ago, in the mountain pasture, lived wanton servants who led a dissolute life, did not say their prayers, and scoffed at sacred things and God's commandments. 
Once, they took some odds and ends and made a doll. They played all sorts of foolish pranks with it, smeared it with cream and porridge, and finally went so far as to baptize it. Now, it came to life and began to talk. After they had recovered from their first shock, they resumed their mischief and behaved more and more dissolutely. After some time had passed, the doll began to climb up on the roof of the hut at night, where it trotted about like a horse. In the autumn, when the men came down from the mountain pasture, they forgot the milking stool. But when they noticed it, nobody wanted to go back to get it, for they were afraid. So they cast lots, and the task fell to the worst one of them. He returned while the others continued with the cattle. When they got to the top of the hill, they looked back and saw a ghost stretching out their comrade's skin on the roof of the hut. Since that time, a dreadful ghost lived there, and the pasture could no longer be used. The doll in this story is actually called a tunch in Swiss German, or zenentunch or tunchi, zenen meaning uh, herdsman. And there are other names and other versions of the tale. There's about 70 different versions that have been collected from various regions in Switzerland and Alpine Austria. It's almost always set in the uh, high mountain pasturelands as the uh, herdsmen's isolation in their remote huts during the grazing season is an essential element to the story. Um, A detail not made explicit in many of the retellings, but generally understood, is that the companionship of the female doll is also sexual, something uh, hinted at in the version we heard uh, with the reference to the herdsman uh, behaving dissolutely. Some variations have some details not included in the version we heard. Uh, For instance, in some versions, when the doll comes to life, the terrified uh, cowherds tear her to pieces, only to see her reappear the next day, whole and alive and not happy. And uh, another part of the story, not included in the version we heard, but a big part of others, is uh, how the uh, Zenantucci reacts to food. She becomes ravenous and begins stuffing in herself and becomes oversized and immobile and has to be carried outside once a week to get some sun. Um, this aspect is uh, possibly related to the uh, 19th century Ch- Czech uh, fairy tale, uh, which was made into an excellent 2000 film, Little Otik, uh, by the uh, stop-motion master and surrealist director Jan Svankmajer. Uh, in this tale, it's a log that's adopted by a childless couple that comes to life and grows into an unstoppable, ravenous monster. While the uh, Zenantucci uh, folktale is usually assumed to be no more than uh, a legend, in uh, 1978, an actual uh, Zenantucci, or at least what was understood to be a cowherd's uh, primitive sex doll, turned up in the uh, remote uh, Kalanka Valley of Switzerland. It's uh, smaller than life-size, but uh, terrifying. A crudely uh, carved, cloth-wrapped figure with uh, breasts of wadded material, hanks of real human hair atop its head, and a uh, 
vagina lovingly chiseled into the wooden crotch. It was discovered by a mountain hermit in the walls of his stone hut during renovation and presented somewhat shamefacedly to the folklorist Peter Egloff. That night, according to Egloff, he was disturbed by a dream in which he saw himself as a corpse and he didn't immediately get rid of the disturbing artifact, which uh, reportedly smelled of uh, smoke for years, but eventually he did hand it off to the uh, Rettischen Museum in the uh, town of uh, Chur, Switzerland, of course, where it can still be seen today. There is also an entertaining 2010 film based on the legend, the first Swiss horror film ever made, Zenin Tucci, which is available to stream with English subtitles. Uh, the bare bones of the folktale are supplemented by a subplot involving the death of a priest and the appearance of a feral female, either possessed or simply mad. And uh, there's also another German film called simply uh, Tunchi, uh, supposedly in pre-production, but that could be a while. Das ist Tunchi. Parents and teachers in a Seattle suburb will vote next week on a plan to ban three books from an elementary school library. Those who want to get rid of the books say they're just too gruesome for young readers. There is a horse that is gruesome. You're hearing clips from the 2019 documentary Scary Stories discussing the impact of Alvin Schwartz's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, a series of books uh, with the first volume appearing in 1981 and the third and final published in 1991. Even though most of his stories are simply uh, modern retellings of traditional folk tales, campfire stories, or urban legends, it's uh, still somehow surprising that in volume three there appears a story about a scarecrow that is actually a very precise retelling of our obscure alpine legend. While there's no baptism involved in this version of the uh, Zenintucci story, most other details remain firmly locked to the alpine folktale, uh, smearing the scarecrow with food, the creature growing, uh, even the uh, trotting on the roof like a horse bit, and uh, best of all, of course, the gruesome ending. The uh, title of the story and the Scarecrow character, by the way, is Harold. So obviously the one other thing changed is the creature's gender. But I suppose it's to be expected that uh, some changes would be necessary in translating the story of an alpine uh, sex doll into uh, children's literature. Good little, bad little you What makes you tease like you do this uh, song from 1929, which I suppose could apply to the uh, Zenintucci in, in its way, is uh, sung by Cliff Edwards, the subject of a uh, sort of a final uh, cautionary tale for our episode. Edwards was uh, better known throughout the 1920s and 30s as Ukulele Ike. Uh, he was the artist who really popularized the song, Singing in the Rain, long before the uh, 1952 musical. And he was also the singer for When You Wish Upon a Star. That is a singer and voice actor for Jiminy Cricket in the 1940 film. The song won an Academy Award that year for Disney, and 
became its uh, enduring anthem. But unfortunately, Mr. Edwards failed to negotiate his own path between wish and reality. Three times divorced and three times bankrupt, he uh, struggled with alcohol, heroin, and cocaine addiction before ending up a forgotten welfare case in an L.A. nursing home. When he died in 1971, his corpse lay unclaimed three days until uh, word reached Disney that their penniless uh, theme song singer needed to get buried somewhere. Their last-minute intervention was all that kept his body from being shipped off to the uh, University of California Medical School, where it would have been picked apart by students and researchers, unaware that this was Jiminy Cricket on the slab. Makes no difference who you are. I do hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you uh, might have the opportunity to share episodes with friends if you do. We've been hearing and would love to continue hearing that this show helps entertain and distract you during these uh, times of quarantine. If it's done so and you are able, we'd also love to uh, have your support through Patreon. Under the uh, circumstances, we're also experiencing some extra difficulties in getting the shows out, so very much appreciate any donations you can make. You can find our donor link on boneandsickle.com or just Google us. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including exclusive access to uh, extra elements that go into the making of the podcast, digital downloads of rare books used in the uh, preparation of the show, the uh, show soundscapes you hear in the background, my Krampus book, and a special mystery kit mailed to our top-level donors. Donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the sole support that pays for the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode. We understand that things are a bit tight now, so if you can't donate, another thing to uh, consider that would uh, greatly help the show is to leave a review. I do want to thank our new patrons, uh, Shino Tenchi, Rotcod, Infocalypse, Jewelry Hannah, Crackles, and Allison Albright. If you haven't yet, you might want to visit our website, bonusicle.com. There you'll find links to our Facebook group, Twitter, and Instagram, along with show notes with plenty of images and video links to the film trailers and clips and music used in the program. Uh, Sound design otherwise is all original for this show. Bonusicle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>